One of the scariest scriptures ever communicated to God's people was right after they uh, left Egypt, they went through the desert, entered the promised land. God said this to the people, do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Like, <laughs> what do you think when you read that, you know? Man, I, do not follow these other gods or I literally will wipe you off the map. Holy cow, that is serious. Now, what was so bad about the gods of the Canaanites, those are the, what the people were called in the land of Israel before God's people got there. What, what was so bad about their gods? Let's take a look at them real fast. The, the, the chief god in the pantheon of gods was the god El. You look at the statue here. This is a little figurine. This is the god of war. Um, this was the god that would protect you in times of trouble. And not coincidentally, in um, the ancient Near East, whenever you had a god, you also had a consort. You had a lover. Uh, you had a wife of the god, and that god was called Asherah. And whenever you see Asherah, because uh, El is the god of war, Asherah is the god of fertility, you always see Asherah um, cupping her breasts, uh, always large breasts, cupping the breasts, and then essentially holding them over so that the image there is suckling uh, the, the breast of Asherah. And the point is that these gods were worshipped both privately and publicly. Privately, people had little figurines in their homes, and whenever they had trouble in their life, uh, there was a, a, a band of raiders coming in. They would pray to El whenever they had problems getting pregnant or keeping a child alive. In the ancient Near East, 3,000 years ago, you would pray to Asherah. Even though God strictly, strictly commanded his people when they came into the land, when he gave them the Ten Commandments, don't do this. The, the Ten Commandments begin this way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me, period. And you shall not, second, make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing to love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So God's people were tempted to kneel down and worship El if they needed protection, and they were tempted to kneel down and worship Asherah, El's lover, if they were trying to have a baby or if one of their children were sick. Everybody did this in Canaan. Everybody did this in the land where God's people were going to live. Another really terrible thing that happened is that Asherah was worshiped in what the Bible calls the high places. Whenever there was a place that was high up, 
And it, was the, it, it comes from the idea that if you want to get close to God, you want to go up as high as possible because the Canaanites, the pagans that live there, thought that if you got higher up, you'd be closer to God. So on the top of these high places, what they would do is they would construct Asherah poles. And most scholars believe because they were made out of wood, we don't have any of them, um, they de- um, degraded over time. Um, these Asherah poles were constructed by people that would pull the bark off of them. So it was white wood, and then they would um, carve a, a buxom lady out of that to represent Asherah. And then at these high places, prostitutes would go up there. They would know, like you see these movies where prostitutes are on the street and they're, they're turning tricks and stuff, and they're going to street corners. That's where they're going to meet the Johns to go and have sex. In the Bible, in, in Canaan, the place that they would go uh, to turn a trick would be up to a high place. Now, here's the thing. These high places were not, you know, when we think of like a place where there's another God and that sort of thing, we're thinking of like a motley crew playing in the background in a black uh, room and then there's smoke and heads of uh, skulls of goats and that sort of thing. That's not at all what was going on here. These people went to the most beautiful places all throughout Israel where they could go up on top of a mountain and they would have an expansive view in these places of tranquility and beauty. That's where they would put these Asherah poles. Our puppy Meadow uh, has been just a lot of fun. Uh, Those of you who have dogs did not tell me that uh, she would go through a puppy phase where if you look at my arms, she would be uh, puppy biting all of the time. But she is just absolutely so much fun to have for both Lisa and I. We went last weekend uh, to York uh, on Saturday. We had to pick up some furniture. And while we were in York, we took Meadow to a park. And I thought, you know, it's time to start training her to go more into the water. And so we found a beautiful park where um, I sat on one side of a little stream and Lisa sat on the other side of the little stream. And we would just call Meadow back and forth, uh, teaching her to go into the water. And she absolutely loved it. Take a look. Meadow, treat. Oh, jeez. Okay. Wasn't it just a really cool, cool place? It was. It was just beautiful. It was tranquil. And when you read in the Bible that they went up to the high places or the high places were being torn down, I don't want you to think of Molly Crew in the background and satanic worship and that sort of thing. I want you to think of beauty and tranquility and peace. And that's what made these gods so seductive is that they didn't come in the form of anger and that sort of thing. And so God gave very clear instructions about what they were supposed to do with these high places. In Deuteronomy 12, 2, God says, destroy completely All the places on the high mountains, on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods, break down their altars, smash their sacred stones and burn their Asherah poles in the fire, cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names 
from those places. God was clear. You cannot worship these other gods. You have to get rid of anything that's going to remind you of these gods. But eventually, the Canaanites actually got sick of war. They, you know, uh, you become like what you worship, is, is the old saying. And if you're worshiping the god El, the god of war, you're going to get into war all the time. Well, eventually, they were like, we need to make money. We're sick of all the death. We're sick of all the carnage. And so slowly but surely, El faded into the background. And we noticed during this time that we're going to be looking at in the ninth century, um, the god Asherah had a new lover. And this new lover was called Baal. Baal, conveniently called in, in English. Baal means Lord, and Baal is the god of thunder. You look at these figurines that are right here. You see the figurine of Baal always having his arm up because he's throwing a lightning bolt because he's the god of thunder. And if you're a farmer, hey, you know what? What a great God to be worshiping when your crops need to come in and you don't have any rain. If you can pray to Baal, the God of thunder, to go and clap some lightning and bring some rain, that's a very convenient God. If you're a society of farmers, that's the God that you want to worship. Well, by the ninth century, almost all of God's people were worshiping Yahweh and Baal side by side. And it was as spiritually dark a time in the history of God's people as there ever was. But during this time, God raised up one of the greatest leaders in the entire Old Testament. His name was Elijah. And in a series of one of the starkest and scariest, a series of these experiences with Elijah, some of the most climactic scenes in all of the Old Testament, Elijah put his life on the line and God's people were called to reject these gods that they had started to worship wholesale without even checking themselves. So today, we're starting a new series that we're calling The Game of Thrones. And we're going to be studying the life of Elijah. And no, we're not uh, studying the, TV, the HBO TV series Game of Thrones. Raise your hand if you were a fan of the show. Raise your hand, hold it high. Sort of type it in the comments. I watched Game of Thrones because we want to know who the people are in the church that love pornography, right? I watched the first episode, the first like 15, 20 minutes of this. I was like, oh my gosh, this is pornography. Anyway, I know you could fast forward through the scenes, but we're not going to be talking about the TV show. We're going to be talking about whether it's the ninth century BC or 2020, there's always a fight in our culture and in our hearts to decide who is going to sit on the thrones of our hearts. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 16. We're going to be looking at 1 Kings 16 into the first verse of 17. By the way, if you haven't downloaded our app, you can always follow the scripture we're looking at in the app. Encourage you to do that. Let's jump in. 1 Kings 16, 29 begins. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, so in the southern part of Israel, in Judah, in the 38th year of Asa, Ahab in the north, Ahab son of Omri became king of Israel. So there are two, so Israel split, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. So in the 38th year of Asa, up here in the north, 
Ahab became king and he reigned in Samaria for 22 years. Look what it says about Ahab. Is he a great person? Is he a great leader? Look what it says. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. What does that say? He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who was basically considered the worst possible person in the Old Testament. Not only did he consider it trivial to do that stuff, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ithbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. The king of God's people began to serve the God, the thunder God, the rain God, Baal. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. It continues. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, and in fact, this seems trivial, but it's not. In Ahab's time, Hillel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. And the Bible tells us very clearly when God destroyed Jericho, it was never to be rebuilt again. But Ahab um, endorsed and funded the reconstruction of Jericho. It's just absolutely a terrible human being. And then it says in chapter 17, verse 1, out of nowhere, we, we see Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now I want to point out a few things about this verse. Number one, Ahab reigned for 22 years. It says he reigned in Samaria for over 22 years. In other words, this was a time of peace and prosperity, and Ahab did a great job of making money for people. Typically in any culture, if the country's leader is making people money, it doesn't matter how morally bankrupt the leader is. And Ahab was the worst. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than anyone before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the, sin, the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Jeroboam was the worst, but Ahab also married Jezebel. Now, you might have heard of this woman named Jezebel. Jezebel lived, if I can bring this map up, if I can find it here, I want you to look at that lit up here all the way in the left-hand corner. I want you to see the brown country. This is um, the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians, uh, there was a city called Sidon. Remember in the New Testament, Jesus said, woe to you, Tyre and Sidon. This is that city. Um, the way people in the ancient Near East created alliances, you know how our president is going back and forth with China over trade. The way he's dealing with trade and trying to make it equal is with tariffs. Whether you agree with that or not, that's what he's doing. In the ancient Near East, you didn't, and you didn't impose tariffs on people. What you did is you married their family. And that's what Ahab did. He married Jezebel. And when you married Jezebel, now what happened is that Ahab, if you pull the map up again, Ahab now could, could allow stuff that people made in Israel to be carried over here to Sidon through the ports. 
and through the navy of the Phoenicians, of the uh, Phoenicians, all of their stuff could be sold all the way around the world. But it came at a price. He married Jezebel, and Jezebel brought her God, Baal. And during that 22 years, Baal worship was protected. Abraham or Ahab became a worshiper. And he built a temple for Baal in Samaria. We learn later that Jezebel brought along 450 prophets of Baal. And Baal worship was everywhere. And in the midst of this darkness, out of the blue, this guy named Elijah shows up. Now, where's Elijah from? The Bible tells us that Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe. Basically, we don't know where Tishbe is, but we know there's a general area. In other words, when you're standing in Samaria and you're looking off in the distance east, there's a whole set of mountains there. And Tishbe is somewhere over in the mountains. And this is the Bible's way of saying, out of nowhere, sort of over there, God raises this guy up named Elijah. And Elijah stands up to Ahab. And says, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And why did he say that? Why did he threaten the rain? Because Baal was the God of rain and thunder. In other words, God was saying, game on. I am challenging you right at your source. And I am raising up Elijah to make this happen. I think that when we're looking at this scripture as an introduction, there are two things that God is trying to get us to understand. Number one, 95% devotion to God is 5% short. God will not share himself with other gods. If you read the Bible from beginning to end, you will come away with one simple message. God loves us and he will not share our affection with anything else. No other gods, no figurines, nothing. And God is like, anything can take my place. Money can be an idol. Work can be an idol. Because we're like, I don't worship figurines. What does this have to do with me? Oh yeah? How many of you worship a person? Whatever that person wants to do in their priorities, they take precedence over God. If that person is taking precedent over God, then you're worshiping that person. A hobby can be an idol. Vegging out and binging on Netflix can be an idol right now. Exercise and fitness can be an idol. If your fitness, the way you look and taking care of yourself has a priority, time, money, energy, if it takes priority over God, then that's an idol to you. Eagles football can be an idol. And I know some of you are like, where's the remote? I'm turning this off. Eagles football can be an idol. The question is, is there anything that you're placing in front of God right now? If you are, that's the, that's the ninth century BC version of an idol. And it's clear how much God detests when his people, whom he has showered with love and blessings, he detests it when they turn around and snub it in his face. I'm going to worship this God too. I'm just going to share you. I'm going to worship El and I'm going to worship Yahweh. I'm going to worship you, Jesus, and I'm also going to worship my work. The second thing I think this passage wants us to get, wants us to understand is that whenever God wants to change something in our world, he raises up a man or a woman. 
Like how many times have we thought, God, why don't you do something about this? Why are you letting this thing happen or that thing happen? Why don't you do something? And God's looking at us and saying, why don't you do something? I'm raising you up to address that. You're my Elijah in this culture. And so we're going to be spending time over the next three weeks trying to understand who is this person, Elijah, and what can we learn from him? What does God want when he raises a man or a woman up for a task? What does it look like? And more importantly, we're going to be helping all of us discover what is it that God is calling us to do? For in the book of Acts, it says, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, then he fell asleep. What's your purpose for this generation? Now, I have some homework for everybody, okay? And the first is, be here for the next three weeks. I want you to be here for this series. It's going to be a lot of fun as we jump into it. There is literally now no excuse. You can join us anywhere in the world. And if you don't, and if you don't check in, we will assume that you've turned to Baal worship. And when you come home, you're going to discover that our men's ministry has chopped down all of your trees. So you can't worship an Asherah pole. All right. So you're going to be here next three weeks. But second, here's what I'm going to ask everybody to do. I want you to get your Bible and I want you to open it up to first Kings. So there's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First Kings sixteen, chapter sixteen. I want you to read it through Second Kings chapter two. That's the life of Elijah. I want God to soak his message in the truth of that scripture into your heart. And as we pull out these lessons, I'm expecting God to do some pretty amazing things in our lives. Let's pray. Thank you, God, so much that you're calling each of us to be an Elijah in this evil and wicked culture. The fact that some of us don't even see it that way is a problem that has to be addressed in this evil and wicked culture that is so not aligned with your priorities. You are raising up women and men to speak the truth with grace and boldness. Help us, God, as we study this passage to have our lives change as we submit them to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, please go to Brian's website at brianjones.com.